The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, we began a new sermon series called Life in Exile. Um, it's, it's a journey through the book of First Peter, and we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and really what's happening is we're, we're taking about two to three verses a week. And you might be thinking, Sam, that seems like overkill, right? You spend 45 minutes preaching about two to three verses, you're, you're pretty much squeezing blood out of a beat there. Uh, and, and what we think there is, is actually, that's, that's not true, um, because... God has spoken to his people through the pen of the apostles that there's so much wisdom, there's so much value here in the book of 1 Peter that there are actually gonna be some weeks where we think that, that one week is not enough for two to three verses. And I actually think that this might be the case uh, for this week because these aren't just any words that, that some dude 2,000 years ago threw down on a paper. These aren't his opinions or, or some advice, right? This is soul food for God's people. These are words from the mouth of God communicated by the Holy Spirit through the apostle Peter for us to grow and feast on the word of God. These are words that are meant to lift up the downcast, to empower the broken in spirit, to encourage the faithful and sustain those who are pressing on. And so this morning as we come to God's good book, we come as people who are needy, who need to feast on the word of God. Jesus told us man does not live on bread alone, but depends on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so that's what we're here to do this morning. We're here not to get five simple tricks or or three steps to a happier life. We're here to hear from God. And so in that spirit, let's pray together as we open up our Bibles. Father, we thank you for your spirit who is at work right now. We thank you for your gracious presence that, that stirs our affections, that moves us to worship. I thank you for the time that we had to, to lift Jesus high this morning through song and liturgy. Father, I pray that as we open up your book this morning, that we would come hungry and this would be a meal that we have been craving, that you would feed our souls, you would nourish us, you would sustain us for the week that's ahead. Father, would you soften our hearts, not to be resistant to your words of grace, but soften our hearts to receive the good news through Christ, your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, as we went through verses one and two, what I did or what I set out to do was to set the stage for this epistle, this letter that Peter wrote. We wanted to figure out who Peter was, Who exactly is he writing to and what exactly are their issues? What are they struggling with? And and, and the main thing that we're going to see here in this, this letter that Peter has written is the tension that Christians face when they live all in for Jesus and the tension that they face when they live in a, a, a hostile culture. 
because of this new identity that God has given them as their chosen, as, as God's chosen people, they no longer fit in with the so, social and cultural norms. They're outsiders, they're outcasts, they're met with resistance and social hostility as they are living all in for Jesus. People look at them and say, they're a bunch of weirdos, right? Who are they to, to get together and sing and lift their hands and do all this weird stuff in the name of Jesus? And, and in, a, in a real sense, we can relate to that as well, right? People look in at, at the church and say, what are these people doing? Why would, they, why would they tithe? Why would they give away 10% of their money to the work of the kingdom? Why would they, why would they open up their homes and be radically hospitable? Why would they do all this stuff? Why would they give so much of their time away to serving the poor and the needy? People look in and say, these guys are weirdos. Now, if last week was your first exposure to this reality, it could probably seem a little discouraging and gloomy for you, right? This idea that we live in a world where we are going to face trouble as Christians, that there is this unrelenting tension between the kingdom of God and the parallel kingdom of this world. Now, when I say that, I need to clarify because if I don't clarify, we lose our urgency and conviction for living on mission towards those who are not yet believers. You see, this tension, this war that we live in isn't necessarily a fight against not yet believers or unbelievers. See, this war that we live in, it's a cosmic war. Something that's that's going on, and this is on that that supersedes, that goes beyond just you and your neighbor. This isn't an us versus them thing. Ephesians six twelve says the struggle isn't between flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in in the heavenly places. See, this means that the hostility that Christians face in this world isn't just interpersonal strife or, or interpersonal spat here. It's, it's a cosmic war that we are in the middle of where the powers of darkness are trying to keep us as Christians from living in our new identity in Christ. Now, as Christians, when we feel this struggle, when we feel this strain, What we're feeling here is the pressure of the enemy that's telling us to just give up, to fold, to give in, to to give it all up. And that's, that's all that the enemy wants. That's all that Satan wants is to see Christians fail to live in their identity as, as Christians. And we go through these difficult seasons and, and, and really being a Christian is quite difficult. It's no cakewalk. Right? That's one thing that, that as we come to Christ, one of the things that we realize right away that, that coming to, becoming a Christian doesn't mean your life becomes roses and daisies from here on out. It becomes difficult. It's hard to live all in for Jesus in a culture that's hostile towards your beliefs. And so in the midst of that, it's like, well, why do I keep doing this? Why, why fight to live like a Christian Right? It would be so much easier to just throw in the towel, to wave the white flag and surrender. You see, we don't, that's one thing that we don't talk about too often. It's that being a Christian is really difficult. And what happens when we're faced with difficulty, when, when we come to the point where it's like, I don't know if I can press on. Right? I don't know if I can keep my faith. 
See, when we live in the reality of this world, that is a problem that we're gonna encounter. That's an internal dialogue that we're bound to have with ourselves. See, and it's a mistake that so many Christian circles will say, you know what, just push that down, ignore that, push through it, fight through it, ignore it. But the reality is, what Peter is going to tell us today, he is going to give us ammunition to fight for our faith. He is going to give us ammunition that will sustain us in the war that is being waged against us as Christians. And, and these aren't some sort of special powers that you have to train for. Right, you don't need to become a Christian all-star in order to have access to this. You don't need to be a Christian for X amount of years before you tap into this spiritual reality. See, the ammunition that Peter is going to, to bring an awareness to has been woven into our DNA from the moment we became Christians. Right, from the moment we receive our identity in Christ, we have been equipped to live in this world. We have been equipped to fight for faith. And what we're gonna see here is how, as Christians, we can make it against all odds, right? In, in, the, in the realms of salvation in present tense and in the future tense. So if you would open your Bibles with us this morning, we'll be in 1 Peter. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible by your feet if you don't own a Bible, you can take that home with you. That's our gift to you. Um, we're gonna be in 1 Peter. It's towards the end of, of the book there, just to give you an idea what, where it's at proportionally to the rest of the book. And so last week, we looked at verses one and two, and, and basically, that's just Peter's greeting to the people he's writing to. He says, to the elect exiles in this area, you've been dispersed, grace and peace to you may be multiplied among you. And as Peter brings his greeting to a conclusion, he wastes no time in jumping right to doxology. He erupts with worship here in verse three as if all he can get is a, out is a hello before his soul bursts forth in song. You see, that is what doctrine is supposed to do. You see, in verses one and two, there is a lot of doctrine there. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, that is a lot of theology. That's a lot of doctrine there. And what doctrine is meant to do is to lead us into doxology, into worship. See, we don't just read the Bible indifferently. See, if, if we read this stuff, if we read verses one, or one through what we're going through, one through five today, and we read that with indifference, we're not doing what this is meant for us to do. This is meant to, to create worship, to generate an awe and an adoration for God. See, Peter erupts here in verse three. Take a look. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is, guys, this is a worship song in a sentence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this, this is a sentence, this is a, a song in a sentence that Peter probably can't sit still for. 
right? I, I was boogieing out here to, to our worship this morning. I, somehow I managed to get myself here in the center aisle. I realized that halfway through a song. It's like, I'm thinking that that's what the effect that this had on Peter as he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Peter is so moved by what God has accomplished on our behalf, what he's captured in verses one and two, and what he's going to, to key us in on, on verses one, three through five, and, and so on and so forth. He is so just blown away by this that Peter just needs a moment to savor it. Now, you probably know what I'm talking about here. If you've ever been to uh, have you ever had food that's just exquisite? Been to a nice restaurant, right? Nice steak. Or when, we, when my wife and I were in Nashville a few weeks back, there was a place that I love called Bar Taco. So good. But you take a bite of it. You just, you let that thing touch your tongue. And you, you just savor it, right? You just need a moment. You're like... Right, that, that's the sort of effect, that, that's, that's the sort of potency that, that what, what this theology that, Pete, that has on Peter, that he just needs a moment to worship. See, he's taking a moment to savor the goodness of God. He's letting the grace of God go across his palate and savor that taste. See, friends, as Christians... This is something that we ought to do. And if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself and I'm honest to you, this is something that we do not do often enough. And the times where we think, okay, I'm gonna do this, it seems forced and, and sort of manipulated, but, but to sit and to savor the goodness of God through this robust doctrine that leads to doxology. See, if we want to have authentic doxology in our life, if we want to have meaningful times of worship, we must learn how to sit and savor the goodness of God. See, we need to, we need to savor the goodness of God. In order to do that, we need to wrap our minds around here what Peter is saying to us because this stuff that he's going to lay out here in verses three through five is incredible. Right? This is game-changing stuff for his people. See, in a performance-driven culture that we live in, what Peter is about to tell us here in verses three through five sounds irresponsible and improbable, right? We're so used to the concept of working in order to become, right? This, this pattern of working to become, right? You put in time here, and then you are this, Right, doctors, nurses, you put, in put time in in medical school and then you become this. If you're a tradesman, you put time in trade school and then you become a carpenter, electrician. If you want to be a musician or an artist, you put in time first in practice and rehearsal and then you become this. See, the status we hold and the way that others view us require us to work and to accomplish in advance in order to become and we are so indoctrinated in this performance culture that it's common for us to approach Christianity in the same way, right? We think that we have to put in X amount of Bible time or X amount of prayer or X amount of doing the good things that God wants us to do in order to become Christian 
or in order for me to, Christ, to be Christian, I need, I need to do something first. I need to prove myself. I need to clean up my life. I need to kick my bad habits. See, when we look at this, this is the definition of moralism. This is the definition of works-based righteousness that you do in order to become. Now, the thing about the gospel is that this is completely flipped. See, what God offers his people is completely different. Christianity says that you are because God has, right? You are a Christian because God has done something so profound on your behalf that he needs nothing from you. To become a Christian, there are no prerequisites on your part. There's no on-ramp that you need to take, right? You don't even have to want to be a Christian in order to become a Christian first, right? This might sound weird, but trust me on this here. Pre-existing faith is not even necessary to become a Christian. Now, let me tell you why here. We're going to look at what Peter says here in verse 3. Because what he's going to tell us here, this is how you become a Christian. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his, that's God's, great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. See, being born again is synonymous with becoming a Christian. See, the the only kind of Christian that's out there is a born-again Christian. But the thing about being a born-again Christian is that you had nothing to do with it. This is entirely God's work. Now, just think for a moment of how much effort you put in to being born, however many years ago, right? The time when you entered into this world. How much effort did you put forth in being born? First of all, it wasn't your idea to become a baby. That was your mom and data, right? They had some crazy idea about that. You had no inclination to think, I've got I've to consume nutrients, I've got to care for my body, I've got to get big and strong. No, no, your mom did that as, she, as you were connected to her in utero. See, all of this happened through means outside of yourself, which resulted in you coming into this world. And what Peter is saying, he's using the same illustration that Jesus uses in, in John chapter three, is that when, when a spiritual birth, the same thing happens. You had nothing to do with it. It's entirely based upon the work of God. You did nothing to deserve it. You didn't make yourself a good candidate for it. You didn't position yourself favorably for it. This is completely the work of God through the Holy Spirit, which makes us born Again, and like I said, this is imagery that, that Jesus himself uses. This is not a reference to some sort of Old Testament thing. This is, this is pointing back to Jesus' theology in John chapter three when he's talking with Nicodemus. And I'm just gonna flip there for a moment here. So I'll key you in on what he's talking about. John chapter three. Now there was this man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews <clears throat> Excuse me. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, he's puzzled by this, how can man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. You see, the summary of this is that Jesus is saying that the only way to enter into the kingdom, the only way to become a Christian is to be born again by the spirit of God. And to be born of the spirit is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is not your own doing, right? Flesh begets flesh, spirit begets spirit. So the question is, how exactly are we born again? Right? If this is the work of the Spirit, how is the Spirit doing this? And, and if we go back to 1 Peter here, in, in, um, in verse 3, Peter actually traces the origins, the cause of our newfound faith, our new birth, back to God's great mercy. He says, according to his, that's God's great mercy, he has caused you to be born again. Think cause and effect here. The cause of your effect of being born again is God's mercy. Now the Greek word that Peter uses here is synonymous for the Hebrew word that's used, hased. And, and this is a word that's used throughout the Old Testament. It's, covenant, it's a covenantal word. It talks about how God is, is favorable towards his people even when they aren't inclined towards him. Right, this is speaking of God's gracious kindness, his steadfast love. This mercy that Peter is referring to is an undeserved favor that is positively disproportionate to our actions. See, it's, his mercy is us getting something better than what we deserve. This is what sinners desire most because if sinners are, are aware of what they deserve, right, it's judgment, condemnation, what a sinner wants most is God's gracious, unmerited favor through his mercy. Peter says, based solely upon God's loving kindness and steadfast love, you have been born again. But what does this mean? What exactly is this mercy? Is this a, a tangible expression of mercy? What does it look like? Right? How do we know if we are indeed born again? Now, if you go forward when you're reading a, a, a letter specifically, you come to a question, you're like, man, I, this confuses me. I'm not quite sure how to put these pieces together. One of the most helpful things to do is to just keep on reading because chances are, there's gonna be some sort of clarification. Last week I said, if you, if you hear something weird, right, we talked about being sprinkled by Jesus' blood, right, that's kind of weird, and what that does, it goes back to the Old Testament. Now, when he says being born again, that's something that, that we can't go back to the Old Testament. There's no talk of being born again in the, New, the Old Testament. What we need to do is keep on reading through Peter's letter here. And in 1 Peter 1, verses 23 and 25, we see this idea of being born again come up. He says, verse 23, since you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So he's saying it's through the word of God that you're born again, and he explains it, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then he goes back to this idea of the word, and this is the word, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. See what he's saying? You've been born through the living and abiding word of God and that word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter is talking about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying it is by the hearing of God's eternal word that you are born again. That as you hear the word, God does something in your heart to cause a spiritual birth to come forth. See, this good news, this gospel that he's referring to is, is that because Jesus lived the perfect life that you couldn't live and he does, died the, the sinner's death that you deserve to die and now, by God's mercy, you have been brought into his, God's family. See, so if you are born again, that means at some point in your life, the gospel was communicated to you. Either a friend or a coworker told you about it. You either read about it in a Bible, maybe heard it in a sermon or, or a, a radio program, a podcast. At some point, you heard about the good news that God is redeeming sinners through his one and only son. That he paid for your sins to make you right with God and by Christ's blood, you are now part of his family. See, that is the eternal word of God. And he accomplished all of that without your help, without you doing anything to make you come alive, to be born again spiritually. And so now, as a result of being born again, you now have faith in God. See, this is why faith is not, not necessary as a precursor to, to a new spiritual birth. Faith is evidence that you have indeed been born again. Faith is evidence of your new birth. See, that is how you can know if you have been born again. Right? In your heart, have you professed Jesus Christ as Lord? Is he the one who has ransomed your soul from the pit of hell? Now, a lot of times Christian faith is reduced to just this this idea that Jesus died for your sins and to get me out of hell and now, okay, that's it. You know, I escaped punishment. I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna face God's wrath. But that is such a small, small representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We actually gain far, far more through the gospel than what we avoid. See, we do certainly avoid hell and wrath and death because Jesus has ultimately faced that for us, but we gain so much more than just to get out of hell <clears throat> card. We gain so much more. See, and Peter goes on to tell us because of this new birth, we now have new life with access to two invaluable things that we can acquire in no other way than through being born again, and that is a living hope and an inheritance. Peter says in verse three that you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
See, what he's doing here is he's completing the gospel story. It's more than just Jesus dying for your sins. He's saying by the power of God, Jesus was raised up from the grave. That death is not the end. That the resurrection of Jesus is actually the beginning of all broken things becoming fixed. That this is the beginning of our world being renewed. And it all starts with Jesus dethroning death and ending its tyrannical rule. Now, when you think about it, death is the great enemy of all creation, right? Death has its fingerprints on everything. Because of death, things will unravel, things will decay, things will fall apart, and things will die. See, death takes everything from us, relationships, status, wealth, influence, property, and what death does, it takes us and it leaves us isolated and alone. See, death takes people that were created in the image of God, that were meant to live forever and puts an end to them. But what the resurrection of Jesus does, it shows us that death does not get the final word. Death is no longer scary as we once thought because it has been defeated. See, for those who have been born again, for those who have been made alive with Christ, we, in our union with Christ, cannot be taken under by death. By the resurrecting power of the gospel, we are made one with Christ and we are raised with Christ where death has lost its grip on us. You see, because Christ is living, so too is our hope. Now this is the the type of unquenchable hope that marks some of the most notorious Christian martyrs that have ever walked the face of the earth. See, this living hope is what has allowed martyrs like Cyprian to remain faithful to Christ in the midst of of heavy persecution and even in the face of his execution. That when Cyprian was arrested, he was told time after time that he could no longer share the gospel or preach the gospel, but he kept on doing it because he had this living hope that he just needed to share with all people. He eventually was arrested and he was taken in prison He was led to his execution stake and they gave him a chance to recant. And on that stake, he he said, I have nothing to be ashamed of. He preached the gospel. He told those who were about to crucify, you know, essentially crucify, to kill him about the good news of Christ. He prayed he turned to his executioner. Get this. He turned to his executioner and he handed him a gift. He said, I have no reservations. I have no regrets. And the only way someone can do that sort of thing is if they have a living hope, a hope that death is not the end. A hope that the resurrection of Christ is working to undo all the bad things and make things new. You know, and, and I think we, we hear these stories of martyrs who have done incredibly powerful things in the name of Christ. And we think, you know what, there's no way I can do that. There's no way I could follow through with that. I would probably recant myself. But this living hope, the same hope that, that, that propelled 
uh, uh, Cyprian to go to his execution boldly is accessible for ordinary Christians like you and me. See, this living hope that's made accessible to us in our new birth is a hope that allows us to face undesirable medical diagnosis. A living hope that, that allows us to face life's unforeknown circumstances. It's a living hope that compels us to stand up and boldly denounce racism and white supremacy. It's a living hope that my failures as a parent won't completely ruin my kids beyond redemption. See, this is a practical living hope that gives us ammunition to keep pressing on. See, because Jesus has stripped death of his power, there's, there's nothing, there is nothing that can submerge our hope. See, even though trouble may come along and the waves of life may try to, to capsize us, our hope is like, like a buoy that makes us pop right back up. And in that, we have a hope that will conquer all because Jesus has conquered the grave. See, friends, we have a living hope that is durable, that is ammunition to press on in the face of adversity. But in, in addition to that living hope, we also have access to a new inheritance. See, this is family language. When you talk about inheritance, this is family language. And if you, if you trace Peter's line of thinking throughout so far, there's a lot of family language going in here. He's referred to God as father already. He, he's saying being born again, right? And when you're born again, you're not born into to a, a void of the world. You're born into a family. And so being born again spiritually, you're born again into God's family. And being born again into God's family, you now have an inheritance, This isn't any old inheritance. This is unlike anything that we could ever acquire here on earth. Take a look at verse four. It said, you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, a commentator on this says that this is an inheritance that is untouched by death unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. It is compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty. Right, this is a, an inheritance that is glorious beyond imagination. That there is no monetary figure that even gets close to ascribing the value of what awaits for us that is being kept for you in heaven. And the good news is here that nothing can mess this up. While we are in a world that is trying to snuff us out as Christians, trying to get us to turn from our faith, to recant from our profession as Jesus Christ is Lord, this is an inheritance that cannot be spoiled. It is being kept in heaven for us. Now here's something to keep in mind here because, because we are totally in this performance mindset. See, an inheritance is not a reward. A reward is something that you get when you put forth effort and you achieve a goal, right? You enter a, a spelling bee contest. You're gonna get a reward if you come out victorious. But inheritance is based upon relationship. 
right? The moment you are born again, there is an inheritance set aside for you in heaven that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. See, this, the riches of heaven, the riches that are stored up in heaven is not a reward for good and moral people. See, the inheritance that is in heaven awaiting those who are headed there is for the people who have born again, been born again by the mercy of God their Father through the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, this is an inheritance that you don't have to prove yourself in order to get. Jesus has done that for you and because of his gospel, he has made you a rightful heir to this inheritance. Now, some of us are probably thinking, right, that's cool that there's an inheritance out, for, out there for us, right? It's cool that God's keeping that inheritance for me in heaven, and, and that's, that won't be messed up. It's like, what's to say that I won't get messed up? What's to say that I'm actually going to arrive at that destination to be able to lay hold of those riches that God has set apart in heaven for me? Right? With all the trouble that we face in this world, that with all the trouble that's bound to happen between now and that day when we come to the end where we lay hold of that. What's to say that something won't ruin me, that my faith won't become too frail or fragile and break and, 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 and wear out? Gosh, and that's such a good question. But Peter has such a great answer here. He says, at the same time that God is keeping an unspoilable inheritance in heaven for you, it is by his power that he is guarding you to get to that end. Look at verse five. He says, there's an inheritance that's waiting, kept in heaven for you and you who are by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, God is simultaneously keeping that inheritance safe for you in heaven while guarding you and keeping you safe as he makes you toward heaven. Now think of it like a surprise party. Now everybody knows in order to pull off a successful surprise party, you have two key factors, right? You've got one person Who's the organizer? They stay behind at the party location. They're getting the decorations set up, making sure everybody's hidden. Cars are parked, you know, not right in the front of the, of the door there. They're, they're the ones that they're, that they're keeping the party, making sure it's going to be maintained. And the second factor is the person who's the chauffeur, the person responsible for getting that, that guest of honor into the party without ruining the surprise. See, so it's, it's the guest of honor who really plays no part in, in the whole ordeal other than just being there and letting the chauffeur take them, right? Letting the organizer make the party and they just show up and boom, there's a party. See, this is what it's like for salvation, right? That, that, that God is, has an inheritance for us that's being kept, that he's working, organizing, keeping that squared away for us and at the same time, he is guarding us, he is getting us to that destination, Now, this isn't just wishful thinking, right? You know, maybe, maybe I'll get there. This is happening for those who have born again because it is happening 
according to God's power through faith, right? It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead that you and I are now being guarded. Listen, guys, I don't know how to say this other than this. That faith is way more BA than you think it is. Okay? Faith, as we know, it has been turned into this sweet gesture that's fit for wall decor, right? You walk into Hobby Lobby, you got all kinds of stuff about faith. And oh, it's so cute. Listen, but the type of Christian faith that God has made for us is not this sort of weak, sentimental, oh, I've got some nice, sweet faith in my soul. This is a rough and tumble. This is a tested, this is a powerful, fierce faith that God has given to us through his power. It is rooted in a living hope that knows that death has been defeated by Christ's resurrection. It is a tenacious, fierce faith. It isn't cowardice, it isn't isn't sentimental, it is a fierce faith that has been tested under fire and this is what allows the elect exiles to say, I know I am going to get to my destination. I just want to clear something up here because, again, there's all kinds of misconceptions that, that surround this, that, that because of faith, right, we'll, we'll be able to avoid any sort of trials, any sort of uh, 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 challenges in life. That'll sort of be our, our, our escape from that. See, faith doesn't, that would just, that, if, if that were the case, faith would be so weak, so frail, right, to, to think that it can get us around the difficulties that we faith, face in life. But this faith that God gives us through his power, it, it, it is so powerful that it gets us through adversity, that it pushes us through the trials and difficulty of this life. You see, this is the most radical thing about the Christian life, that God's power is most demonstrated in our weakness, that when we come to the end of ourselves, that when we realize that we are in too deep, that is when God's power is showcased. That's where God comes in and says, let me show you how powerful I am. Let me sustain you through this adversity. Let me get you to where you're going. See, we have a promise here in Philippians 1 that says what God has begun, he will bring to completion. That is the type of power that he has, that whatever he starts, he is going to finish, that his people, his elect exiles will reach the end goal. They'll reach the new heavens, new earth, the the inheritance that's set aside in heaven for them. And it's by God's power through faith we are kept Now, as I come to a close here, I just want to show you that it's because of the gospel, because of God's mercy, the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is preached to us, that we can be confident that we are because God has that we are born again to a living hope because Christ has been resurrected. And while that is true of our salvation, that he's caused us to be born again, that we'll come to an end day, the end times that he's talking about, the, the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, 
when salvation is fully realized, when it becomes an absolute reality, that there's no more this tension that we live in, that we can be sure that we will be because God is that we will be with Christ, that we will have access to our inheritance because God is guarding us through faith. You see, when you see what God has done in order to accomplish salvation and when you see how little you had to do with that, the only appropriate response is doxology. The only appropriate response is to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused me to be born again to a living hope. That is the only logical, rational response that we have to this good news. That we burst forth in doxology just like Peter does. And so this morning... As we come to the table, as we conclude our worship service and singing to Jesus once again, let us come with thanksgiving. Let us come with praise in our hearts. Let's allow this meal to work in us that as we take the body and blood of Christ and take it in, that this is the power of God to nourish us, that this is sustaining to our faith until the day that we see Jesus face to face at the last time and our salvation is fully revealed. Let us come and rejoice. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your act of mercy which has caused us to be born again, not on our own works, not by our own doing, but because you are a merciful God, that you are full of kindness and steadfast love. And Father, we come to the table this morning to be reminded that Jesus' personification of that love, that while we were sinners, that while we were his enemies, he laid his, down his life to redeem us, to make us born again to a living hope and give us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. God, help us, sustain us through this meal. In Jesus Christ we pray, amen.